0: have a seat oh, this my makeshift studio here
1: uh, so you just came from coaching uh yeah and then I had to go look at the boats are still kind of and they get you know I saw spring they get um you know high school sailing programs in the yep. in the summer and then they get um full sailing so they get the crap beaten out of them three seasons a year wow you know they just don't. They don't get the love. It's uh, fire patrol. I see you brought a coffee.
0: I can also offer you another beverage if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> I, me, come, let, I come prepared. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, let me see how I get through this one. <laughs> right, no worries. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you.
1: You're listening to Standing Before the Mast podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Kind of an interesting mm. setup, yeah. Okay, yeah. Podcast Newport Nautical. What?
0: Yeah, it's it's different. I'm I'm interested in hearing people's stories,
1: interviewing different people that I've known for years. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should uh, have a bigger discussion on that because I've for a long time thought that all of the history of all of the various ratbags around town that are in the boat business. It's just kind of going to go with them. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd really like to do something to uh, address that. And, of course, I have a folder on it. Ah,
0: good for you. <laughs> you're originally from Sydney, then. Right, yep. So you,
1: you were born there, you started sailing there? Is that where you're Well, I was born and raised there. I actually started sailing in a body of water called Pitwater, which is connected to Broken Bay, which is a big estuary 30 miles north of Sydney. And it's the uh, delta for the Hawkesbury River, mm-hmm. which is uh, has its headwaters up in the Blue Mountains, about 50 miles to the west of Sydney. And it makes its way down and disgorges in um, in Broken Bay. And there's two or three. Uh, the pit water is the, <clears throat> is the biggest body, and it's not dissimilar uh, to... Narragansett Bay it's long and skinny mm-hmm. um, it debouches into the ocean and the principal difference is it doesn't have much civilization on a whole one side of its national park and it has all little dents and alcoves and, and little bays and you can see so you can anchor there you can anchor and tuck away and you could be you know in Timbuktu oh, wow. and um, so I learned my dad had a whole series of little boats over the years and um, one, of the, one of the high school kids asked me one day what was it like when I was learning to sail mm-hmm. and I had to stop and think for a minute because in a very literal sense I never learnt to sail you know here you go to summer camp for, for six weeks or whatever it is there was just nothing like that in Australia when I was a kid um, there were sailing clubs Every, everything in Australia is a sailing club there's only half, you know, a dozen yacht clubs, mm. uh, but everything else is a sailing club, and it's like, you know, sail Newport would be a sailing club in Australia. It's a do-it-yourself right. kind of deal. So, um, and they were, so they had, I guess they had some kind of program for teaching young kids how to sail. But I was fortunate; my dad had a little boat, and so I just I started being with him on the boat, and you know, it just you get there by osmosis, I guess. And what then, kind of boat was it? Uh, he had a few. The first, <laughs> the first one, which we actually camped ashore, it wasn't big enough, was a converted 12 foot skiff, which, you know, we're talking late 50s here. Um, uh, you know, it looked like something you'd get out of Chesapeake light craft or wooden boat. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, cut it down, and I have some pictures of him sailing around in it. And then <clears throat> he got into the big time and he got. A, an old same thing except 16 foot skiff. Yeah. And he cut the rig off, shortened the bowsprit, you know, decked in the sides and all the rest of it, and set it up so that we could sleep on that. <clears throat> so we had um, a canvas tarp tent thing that he fabricated or caused to be fabricated somehow. And that went up over the boom and went up to the mast, and he'd rigged up the. It had a. a, a breakwater, washboard, whatever you want to call it, on the at the foredeck that would stop water coming in and trickling down around the mast. <laughs> so all the rain would just trickle down off the side of the boat. And the there was a back deck, you know, an aft deck to it, and that went over the aft deck. It was damn watertight, man. Wow. And we had inflatable airbeds that were called lilos in Australian at the time. And we had a kerosene primus... Pump up stove. Stove,
0: yeah, I remember those.
1: <clears throat> and he got a five-gallon rectangular-shaped kerosene can and modified it to put the stove in it so we could have it set up, you know, inside a Howling Gale. And um, we used to keep the butter in a little, you know, rubber-made kind of thing. Yeah. We'd keep it in the bilge water to keep it cool. So it doesn't melt, yeah. And then we got into the big time, and he got what in Australia is called an Eski, but it's an Igloo cooler. Uh, yeah. It was metal, and, you know, not so big, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, we could have cold drinks. I mean, that was, man, well, now we're Living on large. On the yeah, line. right. We're really going for it. Um, and we would sail, that all over creation had a dagger board. Yeah. You know, big old galvanized thing. And we'd lay the Lilos out um, either side of the dagger board. And it was just. Just we just I mean you know I was so I was born in '55. So this is I have a picture he took in one of the boats. It might have been I don't know if it was a 16 or the 12, but you know I'm passed out asleep in the boat at some point, and the inscription in his writing on the back is summer cruise '57. So I was two and a half. Oh wow! Yeah, Chris, I was born in May, so it was you know Christmas. And, um, you know, here I was, you know, banging around, you know, was I sailing at two and a half? Well, you know, but I was in on and around boats and I think it really kicked in. He had the 16 for a while and then he sold that and he bought a, I think the guy's name is Reg Hartley, that it it was a Hartley, H-A-R-T-L-E-Y, designed boat for a Kiwi guy. And he designed a whole slew of boats for, you know, Kiwis and then everybody else when they found them, to build in their garages, which the Kiwis and the Aussies are notorious for. Right. And somebody had built this thing, and it was a triple chine, 16-foot centerboard um, boat you could tow behind a car. We didn't have a car, so we didn't do that. Um, But it had, you know, a little cabin shelter thing and a couple of bunks and a little, it was... Sort of like a Rosinanti in that it was the basic stuff, and then what you did with it after that was it was up to you, whatever you wanted to do. Right, and we had that for a long time, <clears throat> and I think I probably really started to learn to sail on that boat, and then in May uh, of one year, and I can't, it was it might have been the middle sixties because I wasn't very old. You know, I mean, I might have been 12, 10, 11, 12, you know, so 12 would have been 67. So 65 to 67, somewhere in there. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but somewhere in there, um, the Australian or the Sydney winter vacation is in the middle of the couple of weeks of May. Right. Okay. So it's like spring break the kids are on now. And, uh, he let me take it away by myself Uh you know, we kept it at one end of, uh, Pitwater on a mooring and where we would go is a place called the Basin and Coaster's Retreat, which is five or six miles up the bay. It's like going to Connecticut, border, going to, ba- sailing to Barrington, Okay. And he turns me loose in this little 16 foot wooden thing, you know, no motor, just yeah. sails. And I sailed that thing all over creation. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, um. One of the very interesting lessons I learned from him was the following. Somewhere along the line, I was coming alongside a pier and I screwed it up and I banged uh, the port side of the bow back a couple of feet on a corner of the timbers on the pier mm-hmm. and put a, a ding in it. Okay, you know, it was plywood. Just, right. I'm like, ah, you am going to tell them that I broke the boat. So we, you know, I did something. I don't know what I did with it. Maybe I didn't do anything. And um, you know, I'd finish what I was doing. And uh, at that point, we had he somewhere along the line. He bought a sabo, a little snub nose, yeah, like a prettier, bumpy. Mm-hmm. And they call them El Toros on the West Coast. He bought a sabo, so we could row out to the mooring, and you know, he could an anchor or pick up a mooring, and I could go sailing in that thing, which is what I did. So we, I went out and anchored or, or got a mooring or something and rode back in. I called him up. You know, going to the payphone and put all the dunk, 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 dunk in it, and of course, I had to call him at night because he was uh, working. And I forget how I phrased it, but I I told him about it. And you know, you when you're a ten or twelve year old kid and you ding your dad's boat, car, whatever, you think, you know? <laughs> yeah, this is <clears> it. Right, Hiroshima was nothing on this, right? <laughs> and he's like, oh, what were you doing? And I told him, and he said, so what went wrong? And I'm like and I told him and he said so what's it look like and I said well it's this and that and, the other thing. and he said is there some way you can put something over it to keep the water out of it and I said I'll f- you know yeah. yeah I mean I don't know I do I said the punchline to that whole tale was that he was very calm and, and to me he wasn't perplexed in the least by it mm. and that was a very interesting lesson in two ways one is you know, going off at your kid for screwing up when you lend him your boat doesn't really do anything. Right. Um, and the way he discussed and, you know, questioned me about what was going on was really interesting. So you combine those two things, it was like, and I have no idea what was going through his mind, but I've, you know, I see the same thing with the high school kids. And you look at him and you think, oh, this is not going to end well. <laughs> and they come in and they do whatever it is you think, and they're, they're all like, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, "All right, well, so what we're you doing?" And, and I'm watching, okay. And you just walk them through what happened, right? And yeah, all right, well, uh, yep, okay, you've, that was. Okay. You're gonna like make a lot of mistakes. Just try and not make the same one more than a couple of times. Yeah, see, so turn it into a lesson. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was really good that way. We sailed this thing all over the countryside, and somewhere along the line, he 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 let me loose with it at Christmas. A couple, a few years later, I, I think I must have been, I must have been old enough to drive. I was old enough to drive because I drove up to the boat with all my crap. Um, so that would have been seventy-one or three or somewhere in mm-hmm. there. Went up to the boat, got it, sailed up to um, what's called the basin. And it was Christmas time, so it was like you know Fifth Avenue at Christmas Eve, right? It was jam packed. And um, this boat had a centerboard, so I'm reaching backwards and forwards in the in the mooring field, trying you know there was no mooring, there was nowhere to anchor. I'm like, oh God, all right. but there was a beach. Um, it, it, to, to come to grips with this, you have to visualize that it's it's a little bit like the. The Michigan thumb thing, you know, you hold up there's Michigan and then over here. So it looks a little bit like that. And the big indent at the bottom of which is Saginaw Bay City in Michigan, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like a tenth the size. But there was a beach down where Saginaw is and there was a stone wharf because there were holiday cottages and they were fed by the ferry. But there was a a beach there and we had in the past um, dropped an anchor and, and sort of drifted back in to the beach uh, and it blows like the bejesus out of the northeast, so it's ah. a lee shore. Ah. And it's just around the corner enough that you're out of the nasty part. Yeah. So I thought, well, screw cool. it. I'm going to do that. So I did the thing, and I got the anchor, and I came around, and I you know, did the whole thing. They had a kick-up rider. pulled the sails down, blew down on the beach, secured it, paddled ashore, tied a line off onto something on the beach, and went about my business, you know, whatever I was doing. And um, there was a, a fellow who it turns out was a contemporary, you know, 16, 15, 16, somewhere in there, 17. Um, and he was, like me, he was banging around by himself on a Santana 22. Mm. And he came over and said, you know, wow, that's a, that was pretty sweet. You know, <laughs> What sort of boat's that? And, you know, the way... Right. And um, The way boaters act. Yeah, right. And um, so lo and behold, this guy's name was um, Andy McKillop. Uh, he had 100% certain where he got the money from, but he, he put a lot of sweat effort into getting the boat. Santena 22 was built by the guys that built surfboats in Australia. And he bought it as a hull and deck, hull deck, keel, and rudder structure, so nothing in it. Right. So he did, you know, he fit it out and put all the hardware and all the rest of it. And he would race it in uh, Sydney Harbour and then he'd, he'd sail it from Sydney Harbour up the coast to um, the basin. And, um, so anyway, we got on a house on fire and, um, we ended up, I got some food or something we ended up going over to his boat and we had, you know, cooked dinner and s- sat there drinking rum and coke all night. Oh jeez. <laughs> you know, Wes, yeah. nobody gives a shot. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's Australia, yeah. you know, so long as you don't rock the boat, it doesn't really matter. Right. I and mean, all, all the adults are, uh, it was one of those deals, it's a bit like the campground over at between second and third beach, yep. you're on the yep. way to the, yeah. the bird sanctuary. Same people come every year, every year, every year. Well they didn't have RVs in those days. They they would get off the ferry with carts and carts of furniture and huge tents and the, <laughs> and they'd just build a house that was a tent. And right. they had floorboards and cooking and the beds and double racks and the whole thing. And they'd all sit out the front with a with what is now viewed as a fire pit. Yeah. And just, you know, have at it and drink bottles of beer. And people would come in with the boats in the same. We would. We people would come in. There were a bunch of moorings that was just a free for all, and then you could anchor. Um, And there was a um, a lagoon that had been breached, so you could get into it, um, to the south of this sort of. So it'd be like driving inland from Saginaw. Yeah. It was a tiny little channel, and um, it wasn't very deep. It was you know four or five feet deep at the best of tides. Um, and in my case, with this trailer site, it was called a trailer Hartley TS-16. And in my case, or in our case, my case with this boat, you can just walk it and pull everything up. It drew like a foot and a half. And you can just Push walk it, right it along in. the sandbar mm. and then, you know, go in and you could. It was several hundred yards deep and a few hundred yards wow. wide. And you could, it was quite deep. It was 30, 40 feet deep. And you go in there and anchor and it was completely protected. Mill pond. Yeah. Okay. So I would go in there, but it was so with this fella, Andy McKillop. Um, we, you know, got on like a house on fire because we were the we were the only two teenagers within a thousand miles that had our own boats and we were doing our own thing. <laughs> you know, four or five miles, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But um, so just because his he was on a mooring and it was easier to get on and off with his boat, I left. The trailer sailor, where it was, mm-hmm. you know, nobody was going to do anything to him. And he and I would go out banging around out uh, uh, in the upper reaches of uh, water and out into Broken Bay. On the Santana. On the Santana. Yeah, right. yeah. But the funniest thing. This this is another one of those how how being a sailor can you can get away with almost murder. This, we were the only two teenage guys that were on their own boat, right? It's right. high school. It's, you know, it's Christmas break, so the place is just, you know, a wash in high school, boys and girls. But they're all with parents. They're with their parents. Yeah. And they're in the tent, and there's there's kids on the boats, and they're under the... more of their parents, and the kids in the tents are trying to at mm-hmm. the least to get off. And it's, you know, boys and girls together, and, I mean, you could you could see the hormone haze as he drove in, right? Right. And so... Andy and I had somehow um, kind of paired up with a couple of girls who, whose fathers were mates, and they had their boats rafted up on one of the mornings. One of the girls, her father had um, this big old heavy-duty uh, Vanderstat hard chine plywood boat, sailboat. You know, kind of an okay sort of boat. And then the other guy was a, was a Dutch guy, um, heritage or immigrant or something, and he had a big, long, skinny powerboat, like a canal barge powerboat. Yeah. And um, so they would, you know, they would just come up and raft up and do the same thing as the guys on the beach, sit there and drink beer and tell sea stories. <laughs> and, you know, they'd be kind of watching where the girls would be running around in the, in the dinghy with the outboard. and Keep an eye on them. Just You know, where are they? Yeah. And so Andy and I, we can't, you know, it was like you meet the girls on the line for the phone. and there's like one pay phone, right? And this is... What? What are we? Where are we? We're like early seventies, right? So we got talking to them, and of course, you know, you couldn't get. You know, I mean, there's there's no movies, there's no coffee shop. It's completely do-it-yourself fun, right? And you go swimming, and guys had surfboards, and there were some of the kids they had skimboards, and the, there was a place where you could go skimboarding. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was very little. You know, get away from the parents' territory. <laughs> It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. So anyway, Andy and I have been banging around in this Santana for three or four days. Like a pretty fresh is twenty five knots over there. It's you know that's the makings of what they call a black Nor'easter. And uh, it's a good breeze, it's a good sea breeze. It's like a smoky southwester here. And so Andy and I go out, we'd have a reef in the small jib and we'd go banging out of the bay and, you know, ten o'clock in the morning and we'd come ripping back in with a kite up about, you know, 4 o'clock or something. You know, Santana 22, go mm-hmm. down and win like a demon. And um, because he raced the boat, he had it set up <clears throat> based on a soling arrangement where you could do everything from the cockpit. Mm-hmm. you pull a pole up, you do everything. The only thing you had to do was to go to the master driver. jive it. Anyway, we had this thing hole set up, and we would... <laughs> We would make it a habit of come ripping into the mooring. I mean, going, you know, 10 knots or something in this 22-footer. And um, at the appropriate moment, we would, um, you know, blow the kite, pull the kite down, get the pole down on deck, round up, back the mainsail, pick up the mooring, drop the mainsail and put the awning up. I mean, you know, and and nobody was saying boo. We just, you know, we just did it. And... (laughs) One day, after about a week of this, one day the old man came over us in in the road. He rode over at the airport or something, and Andy and I were like, uh oh, one, <laughs> one of the girls. <laughs> well, the the father right. of the girl I was interested in, um, the guy with the sailing boat, was coming over, and he was obviously coming to us, and we're like, okay, <laughs> well, this is going to be entertaining. And blow me down if he didn't come alongside and invite us to come over and have a beer. Right. And Andy and I are like, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, here we are thinking we're going to get an earful from this guy about being les or showing off or doing. Yeah. And the funny thing was, we went over there and we were treated as sailors. Wow. You know, here we are, 16, uh, drinking age is nominally 18 in Australia, but as I say, nobody gives two hoods. Right. Just don't screw up. Yeah. And this is before everything, right? This is the old days. And, um, you know, he came over and said, well, what would you like to drink? And we go, rum and coke? And he's like, sure. And he, got, and he said, man, do you go and get, you know, tells his story to go get. <laughs> and we, we sat there talking, sailing with this guy. We had dinner with him. And, you know, it's like there was 10 people around the cockpit table with the yep. other family and everything. And we, you know, here we are, these two, you know, one pretty big and Mac had a beard. Mm. These two kind of scruffy, rough and ready teenage kids who were sailors with his two boats, yeah, our own two that. boats, yeah. And but we we were treated as sailors and as equals. Mm. And boy, did it really get up the nose of all of that. We knew a bunch of guys who were camping. It was all the guys from different schools and we right. knew, them. and boy, did they give us some guff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, What's the story with you guys and you know, girls mate? You know, well, you know, so it was pretty funny. Uh, one day he wanted to do this like New Year's Day race or something, you know, mm. big. And so he invited us for that. And you know, I'd been sailing lasers and yada yada yada, and Mac had been sailing his boat. And so we go over, we sail this thing, and it goes around some government mark out in the, in the estuary, and comes back in. You know, it's like a six-mile race. And, of course, it's blowing like stink again. We get around the top mark, and, and Mac and I are looking around. Where's all the spinnaker gear, right? And it's blowing 25. Hmm. We're like, where's all the spinnaker gear? And we put that crispy just Well, isn't it too windy for a spinnaker? And Mac and I are like, well, uh, and he's like, well, if you guys think it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So, anyway, we took this thing up and set it. And this old bucket of bolts goes ripping down one wave with the kite up. And it had an old. Um, this is a perfect place to describe an old VDO um, speedo. Oh right? yeah, you know that yeah. runs off. It's like a bicycle thing on the. Yep. And you know it went to fifteen knots. And this thing, we went down a wave, and it was pinned for about what seemed like forever, but might have been you know fifteen seconds. Mm. And this whole bucket, of, and it's tiller steer. It's a big twenty thousand pound boat. And this guy's sitting in the back, and he wasn't a very big guy, but he was he was a good guy. He knew his stuff. He just he'd never had enough people to. Uh, so that with quite Was I mean that was just the funniest thing.
0: How did you wind up with, with the Americas Cup? You came here. In, <laughs> it, so you came here in '77 and then again in '80.
1: Right. So the Americas Cup, uh, somewhere in there, about the same time I was working with, <laughs> hanging out with Andy, uh, I was working for Elstrom Sales in Australia, and uh, Elstrom Sales was owned. By two guys, Mike Fletcher, who's one of the Aussie Olympic coaches, and a guy named Ian McDiamond, who was the original sailmaker for the f- 49ers. And, it, you know, they're both still going. Elstrom's made a lot of really fast one design sails in mm. the day. You know, this is way before North or any of those. The Hood guys were there, but they would do the yacht sails. Right. And, you know, the North guys were making, you know, sails for Solings, or something so we made all sorts of dinghies and dragons and solings and then etchels and, you know, we made um, sails for half-tonners. It was it was a very, very well-known, very successful mm. uh, thing, and it was a franchise of Elstrom. And so all the fin sailors, of course, around Sydney had Elstrom sails. And there was a guy named Tony James who, <clears throat> who was, um, he was uh, involved with the Australian version of Sailing World, Cruising World. He was the ad guy and then the publisher. But he was a good fin sailor. He'd been the second to Bertrand in the 72 Olympics. He'd gone to Kiel. Um, You know, it was this alternate fin, and he could sail on some of the other boats. Mm. You know, they'd take, like, you know, for all the boats, they'd have the crew. Then they'd take three other guys, and any guy was supposed to be able to sail any of the boats. So Tony went as a second to Bertrand. And so he was, like, fully cranked on the Olympics he thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread he came in one day and I knew who who he was uh and he kind of wanders in and looks around he goes up the front office and he's sort of propped up against the door uh, Mm -hmm. of Mike's office Mike Fletcher's office and Fletch comes out and the two of them are like you can see them talking they're obviously having a discussion and Tony keeps looking over at me and Fletch starts looking at me. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, what have I done now? <laughs> you know? Assume the worst. <laughs> right, right. And uh, somewhere in there, Fletch goes, hey, Cooper. So I'm like, okay. And go trottling up there. And he goes, you know Tony James? I go, well, I know who you are. Hi, how you going? And Tony's like, what are you doing on Saturday? I'm like, duh. He says, well, our sailing club... You come for sailing sail fin. We're having a few guys down. We're going to do some races. You can use my old boat. I can mean, do one. You come down and use my old boat. I'm like, ah, okay, yes, sir. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been sailing lasers, and I was, you know, I was sort of too big for a laser, except when it blew, and then it was like, <laughs> unreadable. And so that was my introduction to the fin. And I went through this whole fin thing, and I ended up uh, getting really, really good in it. And the following year I won the state championship and I halved my position in the nationals. The first year I was fourteenth or fifteenth and the second year I was seventh or eighth. Oh wow. And it was it was seventy six, had just gone. The first big regatta I saw was the Olympic trials in seventy six, January seventy six, Bertrand won. <clears throat> Actually no, he did he? Yeah, he won. He went to went to Canada, Kingston. And then um, so after that, I, I got Tony's new boat, which is a Vanguard. Uh, so I got really good in the Finns, and when I came... The Nationals at the end of 76 were down in Melbourne. And when I came back from that, um, this Gordon Ingate fella, um, who was a, a notable in... You know, a serious notable around Sydney. And he'd won the Hobart. He'd done a bunch of heroic stuff with all beautiful old wooden boats. They're all wood. And, um... I'd been sailing with his um, daughter, one of his, his daughter, he had a son to die, I'd been sailing with uh, Christine, his daughter on his old Tempest, <laughs> of all things. Hmm. So anyway, because I was the right size for Tempest, so we were, and Chrissy and I were just friends, we'd go out and sail and bang around. And um, there was, she invited, I, th- I forget how it happened, but I was at Ross in the Yacht Squadron at the same time he was, it might have been a Saturday. And he came up and, you know, I knew who he was, but I'd, I'd never met him. Mm-hmm. And he came up and introduced himself. Or maybe I'd met him with Chris. Anyway, he introduced himself and said, hi, how you doing? Oh, good, you know. He said, hey, you're doing pretty well in the fin. And I'm like, yeah, you know. He says, listen, I want you to come for sale on Gretel with us. And uh, it was interesting. I keep looking back at that and thinking the way he phrased it was come for sale, not come and try out. Ah, uh, and I don't really know what that means, but it's sort of interesting because everything today, you know, the Stars and Stripes guys are all, you know, fill out this form and try it out. Right. It's a totally different album. So I did, and I did, and I did, and I kept doing it and doing it, and, did, and, did, and did and did and did and did and eventually I got the letter saying you're in. Wow. So um, came to new coming to Newport was a hoot. I organized things so that I could sail in a finery in San Francisco. And it was like the North Americans or something. Pretty good fleet of guys. And there was a guy who um, lived in Wisconsin and knew like the Harcoons and Peter Barrett and all those guys, right? He wasn't in the boat, but he was a physician. But he knew all of these guys. Anyway, upshot of that was he gave me a ride back to, you know, I had to get to Newport from San Francisco and I was fully prepared to just go to play. He said, ah, screw that, come... Come and stay in Milwaukee for a few days. So I jump in the car with him and his 18 year old daughter, and we go feet back to Pewaukee. And he's got this big old lever to Beaver house with trees and, everything, and about 400 million kids. And it was a hoot. And then one day we went out and um, we sailed. He, I, and Peter Barrett sailed on Barrett's East Gow, on Lake Pewaukee. Right. So it's like right at the center of Mecca, right? And at the end of it, somewhere in there, this guy's name, uh, name was Tony Herman. Tony gets a hold of Barrattier, unknown to me, gets a hold of Barrattier and, and and effectively says, "You know, you're going to take this kid to, to Newport." And uh, so we go home. <laughs> we went through Pewaukee Yacht Club, and the, you know, the whole, the whole battalion of people were there, and um, there was a very, very funny evening that had a lot of alcohol and a, and a goofy dice game. It's very funny. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it was very funny. Alcohol and dice. Yeah. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. Never I mean, thought
1: to mix those two. No. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was something the Harkins had dreamed up, and the, and the fire water was just, you know, they had fire extinguishers on every corner. And so wouldn't somewhere along the line, Tony says, hey, I got you a ride to Newport with Peter Barrett, and I knew who Peter Barrett was. Right. You know, founding member and Finn Sailor and yada, yada, yada. And um, I'm like, wow, great, you know. So we get up at whatever time it was, wash the, blow the dust off, jump in Tony's car, and we kind of back road it a bit. And I'm thinking we're just, you know, going to get on the highway Mm. Uh, or go to Barrett's house and swap cars, right? We pull into an airport, a little, you know, like Newport Aero. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm still pretty dusty. And I'm thinking, what the hell are we doing here? And we, you know, drive around the apron, and there's a light plane, and there's Barrett doing mm. a check. And I'm like, okay. And then it dawned on me that Barrett's an aeronautical engineer, so of course he flies. And right. I'm thinking, oh, so this is general aviation. This is... Yeah, oh, yeah. This wasn't, you know, one TF Green. It was, you know, rubberband airways. Right. And um, so I flew with Peter Barrett. Actually, I wrote, this is in one of my wind check pieces of... Few, few back. Um, I flew with Peter Barrett in a little plane at ten thousand feet, more or less, I guess, from Pewaukee to Newport, Arrow, uh-huh. in '77. You know, June mm. or July of '77. And my first view of Newport was in this light plane flying around at a 1,000 feet out over the Astro Surf, mm. watching Enterprise, and, and I guess it was Intrepid or someone, you know, working up. Wow. So we did a few loops around and checked it all out, and I'm like, here's little Joey Cooper flying into Newport, Rhode Island with Peter Barrett from North Sayers. I mean... Yeah. You know. The, and, the, what a way to arrive. Well, the, 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 the connection to that is from 62. So Gretel, the first Gretel, Gretel... Was uh, sailing out here um, in '62 mm-hmm. against Weatherly. She got the but she won a race, and so I was seven, and I'm sitting in bed in the morning, and it's like a shortwave broadcast. Static, <laughs> don't you know? Weatherly's going. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're getting and bits and pieces. Yeah, right, right. So I'm listening to this thing. Of course, I'd been sailing with my dad, and my dad would get all the clip. I still have all the clippings. It's ridiculous. The boxes of clippings and stuff. So I've got all of this stuff. I knew where Newport, Rhode Island was before I knew where Queensland was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, relatively speaking. And so I'm sitting in, up in bed listening to this thing, totally riveted. And it was the race where it was blowing hard. It was the top end of the wind range for twelves. And Weatherly led around the top mark, and it might have been like a 15, 10 mile beat and a ten mile run. It was mm. you know just a very plain vanilla race. Weatherly led around the top mark but only just the the commentary was that that the Aussie guys were only two or three boats behind them wow. you know right up the stone tube and um, they both get around the mark and there was some issue with Weatherly's kite either they broke it or the pole fell off or the pole broke or something and they were in a, in a you know a bit of a fire drill mm. and the Aussie guys come around a corner and they set the kite and it's you know it was a pretty big kite I believe there's there's a Pathé YouTube video you can find, um, and they start gaining on them, and then they come even, and then they surge ahead. Wow! And the guy who was the announcer was an Aussie guy named Lou Del who was a journalist by day and a sailor the rest of the time. And I thought he was going to break something. He was just <laughs> completely wound up. I mean, he makes Peter Montgomery look like a like a yacht whisperer. Oh, wow! Mm. Yeah, it was just. I thought he was going to bust something. <laughs> and I'm sitting here, you, you got it, like, this seven year old kid's like, yeah, He conveyed that enthusiasm to Oh, you. oh, yeah. oh, God. Wow. I just about wanted to jump up and, you know, I don't know. It was just completely on fire. So then, you know, fast forward, you get... Um, now you're here. You get seventy. You get 67, there's Dane Paddy. Oh, of course, right. Comes over, gets beat. I was working at um, Gretel, the Gretel 2 in... Um, 70, 1970 um, and I actually did a Bermuda race with Steve Van Dyke, who was the tactician on Intrepid that year. Uh-huh. And so he and I argued all the way to Bermuda. About, <laughs> or you know, yeah. we talked about it a fair bit. Anyway, that was just kind of fun. And then seventy four, I was working at Elstrom's, and this secrecy thing, this sort of subtlety with the the drapes and the keel and everything, mm. that was from the get go. Southern Cross was built. In a shed in Sydney with no signs, it was you wouldn't know what yeah. it was, and um, then <laughs> then they tracked it to Western Australia. But anyway, um, so that was seventy four, and you know that was all because I was working in the bud business. That was all the buzz at the time, and then you know we did the Finn thing, and then I got invited for girl, and I, I ended up here, yeah. you know, with Peter Barrett in um, seventy seven, and that was with uh, a, the modified rebuilt reworked Gretel from 70. Mm -hmm. This guy Gordon Ingate had bought it and, you know, he'd gone, we're going to go win the America's Cup. And then through that, I sailed here all that summer, and then through that, even though Bondi's boat was a West Australian boat, a a lot of the guys were from Sydney in the area that I knew, and I I knew a lot of them. And one of the guys in 79, a guy named Lee Killingworth, called me up one day. He was in town. And he said, "Hey, what are you doing?" I said, "I'm doing X, Y, and Z." And he says, "You know, when you come over to, he was taking a boat to Europe, one of Bondy's boats to Europe for the '79 Fastnet, in fact, and it was in a you know container terminal somewhere. So I went over there and talked for a while. We went and had a hamburger somewhere. The upshot of that was that he recommended to Warren Jones that Warren hire me for the position of boat captain on the then refurbished again Australia from '77, mm-hmm. and so in." June or July of 79, I flew to Perth, the Frio, and took up running the boat, uh, getting it doing, you know, everything that the boat captain does. Right. Put it together, pull it apart, put it on a ship, Mm. put it together, pull it apart, put it on a ship. (laughs) You know, know, when we got here and there were enough guys, um, you know, with with specific technical skills... um, to look after the stuff, as well as the crew. I think 1980, we had a total of 20 people, including Bondi, Bondi's secretary, um, and a couple of guys who were just, you know, part of the Western Australian Sailing Mafia that just showed up to help because they could. Right. Um, You know, they get the T-shirt, and they looked after themselves otherwise. And uh, we had one 20-foot container, one 15-foot Avon rib... And, you know, if we spent a million bucks from the time they put the Sawzall to the 12 till it landed back in Perth, mm. that was probably a lot. Wow. You know, you can't get a pair of grinders for that these days, I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, where, where, where was all that when I was a grinder? Yeah. That, is that what, what that, you were the boat captain? Well, was... so I, what happened was I was the boat captain, and when we got here, I segued into it. So, when when we were in trio working up, I was the boat captain, but I still sailed. I was grinding, or sewer. Right. And when we got here, I just um, became one of the one of the crew because they had enough. Everybody would maintain like it was one of those deals where the crew would maintain the boat. Mm. You come in after sailing and something screwed up. All oh, right. You know, whoever was in that department would fix it. You didn't step off with a bag and look cool. No, 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 no. There was there was no shore crew. We right. were the shore crew. And there were three, of, as I say, there were three or four guys wonderful old character named John Fitzharding who was an architect and made be- he made a bunch of beautiful drawings of Founders Hall where we stayed mm. down against it you know he could he was an architect by trade and uh, he could I mean he could do and make anything A guy who just passed away and about whom Scuttlebutts just posted a piece that I wrote about him a guy named Jack Baxter was the Navigator and he was a math teacher and a manual arts guy, so and he'd build his own boat. There wasn't anything he couldn't fix. I mean, he could right. have rebuilt the whole boat. And a lot of the other guys, Australia and New Zealand, are very prominent in their vocational trades mm-hmm. educational system. Right. That's, I argue that that's why you see so many Kiwis and Aussies in the Volvo boats, because they they're really good sailors and they can fix anything that breaks. Right. Yeah. You know, they're and they're properly trained. They're not, you know, it's like a five year apprenticeship.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so. So then that was 80, and um, we took a race off Dennis. That, that was a year with a bendy top rig, right? Oh, right. You could do an a, entire podcast just on that. <laughs> so okay. we, t- we took a race off Dennis with, with that, and then touted number is 20 minutes, but I don't really know how we figured that. We were a long way ahead of him when the time limit ran out on another race. Um, and so he got us 1-4, one 4-1. Four, four one. And um, we're sailing back in. Bondy and Warren Jones and maybe just the two of them. Bob was a tactician on the boat. Bob, ben Lex and Bob Miller. Jonesy, there must have been somebody else driving the rib because Warren and Bondy both jump on the 12. Mm-hmm. And not for no good reason was was Bondy's mansion on the water in, in Perth known as Toad Hall. Because when Bondy got into a got into a certain mode, he was just for all the world like Toad and the Wizard of, and the the uh, Wind in the Willows. Oh, the Wind in the Willows. Yeah, he's a little, sort of, chunky round guy, and he would, he had so much fervour and energy, it was ridiculous. And he jumped on the bench, just, Listen, we're going to come back, you know. Screw these guys, we're going to come back, we're going to win this goddamn <laughs> thing. Bob's going to do, it. and he was just on. He had the whole thing mapped out. Like yeah, half an hour after we finished the last race. Wow. Yeah, and um, he was determined. Yeah, and then Australia, too, was that. Mm. You weren't part of that, were you? I was the last guy not selected. Ah. I got back to... Uh, uh, so, we're in... in During the... Between 80 and 82, um, i started work on a green card deal, and I was going to go work for... I did go to work for John Alden Yacht Brokerage. Mm. And so I had my green card thing going through, and I got through all of the stuff, you know, the labor stuff, but then I had to go through the State Department for the background, you know, make sure I wasn't an axe motor. And um, so because I was going to Italy for the Sardinia Cup, I had the file sent to Italy. So I'm cool on my heels in Italy. And I'm in touch with John Longley and, and the guys and so and this is like postcards. Telexes. My brother worked for CBS and I was holed up in the CBS office in in Rome so I could sell the telexes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you know I was conversing with with um, with John Longley, who was sort of running the thing under warrant. And um, the punchline was, you know, you know the deal. Just because you did something yesterday doesn't mean you're going to make the cut for tomorrow. Right. Bondy wanted everybody to come back and start all over. Start again. Yeah. You know what? Do you, you know what you did yesterday was yesterday. What are you going to do tomorrow? Yeah and, uh, which is, you know, okay, that's, you know. That's a similar. program. Huh? Yep, that's, you know, you knew that going in. But I left it too late, I got, um, I ended up down in the base in Perth, uh, no, in Melbourne, second of January of 83, and the boat was out sailing, and um, the guy who was the boat captain then was a guy named Steve Harrison, who I'd known some number of, 10 years ago, surfing up and down the East Coast. Mm. And he'd done a couple of uh, Whitbraids with Honor Vanderwall in the meantime. And he was a tradesman machinist. And so, you know, he, got <clears throat> he was running the boat. And, you know, he wasn't, out, he wasn't part of the sailing program. He was a shore crew. He, they had two or three guys that were actual shore crew at that point. Jonesy had it set up so that one of his things was to make the experience, the training experience, as close to real life in Newport as possible. Mm. So it wouldn't be culture like, shock. It wouldn't be a culture shock yeah. for the new guys. Mm. I think, you know, I'm going to pick 80% of the guys in the program in 83 mm-hmm. had done at least one, and Chink was on his fourth. Wow. Okay, there were a lot of guys that had done two or three before. Somehow they'd organized, just set up where there was a big old Victorian house like Newport, right, and everybody would stay there, and Jonesy would have these, um, what do you call it, itps intensive training periods Mm -hmm. and it was a 10-day deal where you would be in newport you'd live in the house you know they had somebody come and cook food you get up at six you do your thing you Mm -hmm. go work on the boat you go sail wow uh we'd sail against challenge 12 we'd practice starts we'd do everything come back in you go you know you wouldn't go out Mm. it was and it wasn't really restricted it's just that everybody that was on the boat because of the keel, they'd all seen, we'd all seen the keel, knew that, oh man, this is really gonna be it. Mm. As opposed to, oh yeah, we're gonna go and beat the Americans. It was like really, it had become part of the DNA of all the guys, mm. just, you know, this is so off the dial different. And the performance of the boat was, yeah, was it was not know. And so I show up at the boatyard, and um, Steve Harrison's there, it's a big mesh thing, and it's got a travel lift or the thing and a center lift thing, mm. and there's, you know, huts and containers. And they had two containers, I think. One had the, one had one one was for the boat, and it was sitting over in the corner, and it had um, on the top side of it, was a I guess it was, I don't know, maybe it was a 40 It had hinges on the top. Mm. You go there and you look at it, and I go, what's this thing got hitches? And I didn't know about the kill oh, right. a- until I got there. Um, you know, there was all sorts of stuff flying around, but I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And, but there were hinges on the top of the container. And you go, why has the container got hinges on it? Mm. And so the boat comes in, right? And the guys are all, you know, I knew half the guys like, hey, hey, going? And, uh, they come in and they put in a travel lift pit and they get ready to pull it out. So they drop the drapes down and Harrison goes, come here. And we walk down the ramp down the side of the thing. And we duck underneath the... Uh, the blue tops, mm. and I still get goosebumps telling this story. So you hear the crane fire up, and um, you know the bottom of the boat's white, and it's you can't see five feet in the water there. It's ridiculous, and um, boat starts lifting up, and it looks like a normal twelve metre all white. It comes down right. with a big rake from the bow, and then there's this there's a sort of a splurging sucking noise. Mm-hmm. And there's turbulence on either side of the keel, and the front of the keel starts going forward. And you look down, and the blue of the wing starts coming out of the water. <sighs> and you look at this thing, and it's like, you know, seeing E.T. Yeah. <laughs> it was so off-the-dial different. It, the, the, the length of the fin was very short, so it turned on a dime. Mm. And um, it had the stability... But the punchline for the whole keel thing was that it eliminated a lot of drag off the bottom of a normal keel. That's, that was the background to it. Right. So you see all the planes with the little fins on the end of their wingtips now. Yeah. yeah.
0: So yeah. that's Inlets. what that was
1: all about. But just the whole thing. And of course, you know, Jonesy was the minister of psychological warfare. He just, you know... Bondi was a money, Bertrand was a stereo. I reckon Jonesy was a guy that won the America's Cup. Yeah. You know. I remember newsroom. I was... I was
0: only 14 then, but I remember news reports and the, the media would go out and interview people on the street or even maybe notable sailors at the time here mm-hmm. in Newport. And people were speculating, oh, I think it's just, they're, they're just trying to psych us out. There's nothing special. And, you know, and the, people the, were
1: speculating, but it turns the, out there was the, something special. The, <laughs> the spectrum of responses was off the dial. Yeah, it was. And I think Dennis really figured out he was in trouble when he had, it was actually, I think it was Freedom down at, um, Newport offshore. Pretty sure it was. I don't think he did it with Liberty, but he had Freedom pull it. He had one of the boats pulled out, and they were bolting, lag screwing a set of, you know, what looked like a piece of AX plywood cut into the shape of wings on the bottom of I mean, it was just completely agricultural. And uh, I wasn't part of the, the program at that point, but, you
0: know, they. So they had some inkling as to what maybe it was in order to, to go in that direction. Yeah,
1: there was, I think by the time the boat got there, um, enough journos and enough people had been up and enough light planes and helicopters, and, you know, you can only keep it secret for some reason. Right, yeah. um, I would be absolutely flabbergasted if anybody outside, you know, Bondi's, really, Bondi's group and maybe a couple of journalists that were, you know, kind of journalists, but they were sort of mates with the syndicate, and they might have figured it out, but I think they did a pretty good job of not saying anything. I don't think anybody really knew what it was till last race. And there was... Correct me if
0: I'm wrong, wasn't there any independent sort of measurers from.
1: Oh, no, it got measured by. It got measured. measured. Nothing got leaked through from the measure. Not, I mean, not as far as I know, but I can, I would bet you, and I, you know, I speculate because I wasn't there, I would bet you several dark and stormies that Warren got uh, no disclosure from the surveyor and the measure. It might have been Bob Blumenstock who hasn't been around for ages, I don't think. I don't know who the measurer was. But I would be absolutely flabbergasted if he hadn't got some kind of... You can come and measure our boat, but you are not going to tell anybody what it looks like. You're either going to certify it or you're not. Ah, right. You know, Warren was very tough guy, very, very strong guy. I think he was a CPA by trade and training, and he worked with Bondi on some of Bondi's businesses, and I think he had his own setup, up that... Man, he was the guy that won the Americas. Now, did it come
0: out later that they had actually used a testing
1: tank outside of Australia, and, and that was some... The tank testing was done in Holland. Right. And uh, the other side of that was a guy named Peter Van ossenden And the big brawl was whether Bob Miller came up with the idea for the wings on the bottom of the keel or not. Ah. Uh, and... Um, you know, some people say it was somebody else's idea. There's a guy. I don't think it's Van and I think it's another guy, third party, who said that. You know, he came up and and he suggested to Bob, bubble. He did something that influenced Bob to come up. But all the guys in the you know, you talk to any of the guys from the boat, they're like, that's a crock. You know, Bernie's right. idea from the get-go. Huh, there you go. Sort of doesn't matter now. Yeah. Look! Look what they've done. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> very <laughs> different. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But you just came from coaching, so that you're doing that as a
1: side thing now? Well, so... You're coaching kids. Well, right, so fast forward from when I got my green card, worked with Alden, ended up working for Hood, started in 86, worked with them on and off since then, and um, my present entity is Joe Cooper Sailing, mm. and part of that involves coaching uh, the sailing team at the Prout School over in Wakefield on the mainland. And, um, so yeah, we just had our first day on the water today. And so I was, you know, checking things, doing the punch list and everything. And I figured, all right, and I'm doing an interview about sailing. It's showing up in a dry suit. not a bad No. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's a boat shop. No, it's it fit. Right. It takes forever to get in and out of these, you know, at least for me. Um, but I also do, um, coaching for, you know, adult sailors mm. across the spectrum, you know, guys who just want to learn a bit more about sail trim or there's a lot of guys washing up these days who are sort of setting their boat up. They're 45 footer for the exit plan Mm -hmm. and they want to get out of Dodge. And, um, you know, they buy a boat and it's not remotely set up for going in the ocean, so they need to know how to do that. Basically, anything on a sailboat from the deck to the windex, I can come up with ways to make it easier, simpler, faster, less hairy um, in terms of sailing the boat across the spectrum of wind direction, you know, apparent wind angles on the boat and apparent wind speeds. If you think that a sailboat has to operate in roughly 3 or 4 knots of breeze to about 45 knots, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe 50 knots, but for the average bear, 45 knots is enough to stop. Yeah, I saw one of your videos on it sounded it sounds
0: very simple and basic, and at first you think, "Well, you shrug it off because it's about how to properly wrap the winch." Oh! But then I watched the video, and I thought, "Well, that's really good. It's, it, it was very instructional. Hand positioning, uh, even for somebody who's done it before, you think, right. Well maybe
1: you know, maybe I've been a little sloppy recently.'" Well, that's you know, so the history to that was so. Another one of the things I do is, as Storm Trooper Club member, I'm I'm part of the group and the foundation that produces the junior safety at seas. Mm-hmm. And it's something that reached the moon and started, you know, years ago. And it's become... They have 200 kids at the Larchmont one. So I think over the years I thought, you know, the idea is to give kids enough skill that they can get on a boat and they can have a role. Mm. What I what I didn't want is for kids to get invited to sail on a big boat but told sit in the back and don't get hurt. Right. Okay. You know, it's... That's not going that's to gonna kill. Any that's ambition. not going to jazz anybody. Yeah, yeah. My dream world is that high school kids will get enough time and experience and instruction, coaching and mentoring, mm-hmm. that we can get them hooked in with owners and take you know a couple at a time and sort of blend them into their crew and connected to all of that. The single. There's there's two aspects of using a winch. One is, if you can use a winch, you actually have some value on a boat, Mm. okay? And two, if you can use a winch, you're a lot less likely to get hurt. Right. Okay, and if a 16-year-old kid gets hurt in a boat, it's just such a horror show for Mm. everybody. The kid gets bummed out, the parents jump up and down, the owner's never going to take a kid. Right. You know, even before you get to the lawsuits, right? (laughs) And so, I've been involved in these Junior Safety at Seas, and we're doing another one in June... Um, With Sail Newport, and connected to that is, um, I'm also involved, I'm on the board of something called YASA, Young American Sailing Academy, which is the evolution of the Young American Junior Big Boat Team, which Mm -hmm. is High Noon, the kids that blitz the 16 Bermuda race. Okay, the guy that started that I've known forever, Peter Becker, he's one of my oldest mates in the country. I'm working on that kind of project from up here. I've sailed three or four races with those kids, and they are spectacular sailors. Mm. They're really good sailors, but they're really, really tuned in on a whole spectrum. Of, I mean, you could sit down and have a discussion with them about anything. And in, in we did the last vineyard race, and I wrote about it in check, We, you know, totally lost all the electronics... We lost, we, we'd lost power, and the, how we did that was a, uh, a lesson that I fed back to the kids. But they sailed 75% of a vineyard race. On I think there was another video I saw that you had on YouTube. There was, was a couple. of the a J-105? Yeah. 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 We sailed. There were eight kids and me, and the kids ran the boat. Mm. And I just, you know, I I'd tell them, you know, you guys run the boat. I'm going to be the Jersey Barriers. Right. You know, if it gets too squirrely, I might sort of look at you funny. But... Yeah,
0: I think they mentioned the, the clip of the video I saw. There was no power, and they showed this fancy array
1: of instruments. And, nope, we're using the compass. Right, tri- tri- triple zeros. Yeah. Yeah, so we, the, we didn't have any battery power, and we couldn't start the engine, so we had no ge- no electricity. So we started the race on a compass and Windex. I eventually pulled out my handheld GPS, and I had some emergency running lights the The kids spent probably a couple of hours over a few hours trying to get the engine to go one way or the other. Mm. It was a combination of cluster, but the upshot of it was was a really interesting lesson for the kids on planning and preparation and checking and and um, we did the whole. Right. They never they never batted an eyelid about oh my god you know we don't have anything we got to you know yeah it looked pretty relaxed in the video they were just chilling yeah they, they were funny pretty in control They are, the only time they got a little like was coming back we were in the sound of, uh New Haven and it was classic flat ass glass off It was, mm-hmm. and the boats banging and, oh, were, right. and I mean 25% of the vineyard race fleet that we were with pulled out
0: 25% yeah
1: wow yeah yeah, and the we sailed it took fifty four or five or six hours or something. Mm. We finished on I think Sunday night, and we sailed up to a mooring. Just, i mean, it's a remarkable group. Anyway, so I'm involved with those guys. I'm also a member of Ida, and I've been trying to fertilize the infield with getting something done with Ida and junior kids mm. and thing. And then the South Newport people, um, member there, the Sal Newport guys um, have this Ted Chancellor, Ted. Sanchez Fund who was Mm. a guy who passed away a few years ago okay all right. so he's you know uh, deeded some funding for Mm. this kids big boat thing and Sal Newport kind of got it going last year and then I was talking with um, I. Lewis management about okay here's what I think and how we can do it and you know Mm. what's the money where do we get the boats all of those sorts of things it's a great idea but okay how are we going to do it right And then one of the guys said, well, let's go and talk to the um, Sal Newport guy. So we've had two or three meetings of of sort of a collective of, you know, me as sort of all three, (laughs) you know, Yasser and and Ida and the thing. And then there's people from Storm Trissel and obviously Sal Newport and a guy named Steve McGilvray, who's one of the flags at Ida. And we're just sort of trying to get all these... Put something together. Put it all together because there's so many reasons why it's a good thing to have young sailors, high school sailors, essentially, or high school kids, come and get more involved in big boat sailing. Hmm. And I mean, you know, you could do a whole podcast on that, but you got, you know, the single biggest thing that you, you hear guys grizzling about is they can't find crew. Hmm. Okay, that's why double-handed sailing, which I'm also involved in, and you put Yacht Club, right, uh, Bermuda 1-2 and all that scene. Um, that's why that's becoming more and more popular. Um,
0: Actually, and, I, I'm on. The, I'm a member at the Newport Yacht Club. Right, and yeah. I, I just noticed in one of their latest mailers, they've got a program they're trying to introduce. It's to get kids from the sailing program before they lose interest out on a big boat. Marine Adventure Camp, which yep. offers a big boat experience for kids, yep. uh, they put out a call to members with yep. racing and cruising boats mm-hmm. to get yep. them on and find a position for yep. them, find them to yep. keep, keep their interest.
1: Right. Well, John Bixby, who's the... Um, uh, junior program adult chair right. is a you know client of mine, one way or another. Oh, so and, that's where you got the idea. Well, I just, you know, I mean, if you remember the, the refit of the J-22 a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. okay, with Iris and all of that, yep. I was the guy that started that. <laughs> and and Bixby was involved in that, and I said, all right, we well, you got to figure out how to do this. So, yeah, yeah. so we did all of that, but um, there are a lot of sailing instructional entities that have finally, thank God, glommed onto the idea that not every kid wants to go to the Olympics starting in his opti, and that there's a whole life of things to do in on and around boats outside of banging your head against the wall in a green fleet. Um, one of the kids on the sailing team, Lucy. Uh, worked as an instructor at Newport Yacht Club last year, mm-hmm. and she's going to do it again this year. And as as an instructor, she thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread because she gets to bang around the harbor with a bunch of, you know, Newport kids. Right. You know, Martin Luther King Center, and, you know, I mean, we, you know, <laughs> what do they call it? It's the white man sailing's a white man's burden, mm. Right. And so you got a whole bunch of kids on this island that are, you know, not remotely near that problem. Right. And it's like, guys, it's it's like right down the hill here. Right in front of you. Right in front of you. And that's one of the things Newport Yacht Club is doing, which is great. Yeah. And um, so Newport also has, you know, various scholarship programs going to get kids sailing and so on and so forth. So there's, I mean, Newport being the sailing capital of the world that it is has so much horsepower and energy and smart people trying to you know think about how to get the thing moving along Mm. it's just you know the whole thing with the J22 I wrote three or four pieces for Windcheck on it and it was just so gratifying to see this whole little sailing community kind of bang Mm. it all together to fix up this old bit of boat that Kate Wilson got right so I've been sitting there for a while right what are we going to do with this thing we can't sail it and we got you know it's yeah needs care and feeding so the iris kids fixed it and then you know so on and so forth do so. so you get a lot of feedback from the wind check magazine is that a
0: good you get good dynamics uh-huh. with people connect contacting you as a I, result I,
1: it's not a high frequency but I do I've had people come up to me at Blockliner Race Week when was the last I did the last one was in 15 and um, you know I'm just standing around the tent having a beer and a couple of people on two couple of different occasions have come up to me and said are you Joe Cooper and I'm like not if he owes you money. <laughs> I say you're the Cooper from Coops Corner, I go yeah. Just, and they, you know, they go off being very effusive about it. right. And a couple of people have written letters about it, and um, I've uh, acquired two or three coaching clients out of it. Um, guys just call up out of thin air and, and start talking about what they, you know, what mm-hmm. problems they have and can I fix them? And so uh, somewhere along the line, I find out, you know, I ask them how they found out about me, and it's Wincheck Column. So, what do I do? So, I've got the kids coaching. I've got adult coaching. um, I do seminars and presentations and lectures and things. And this can all be found under the umbrella of JoeCooperSelling dot com. (laughs) All right, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) That works. Yeah, keep it simple, right? Uh, And um, a lot of it, a lot of the material on the website is information and systems and techniques and. how can I do this? Mm. So, like the classic example is everybody has like a one thirty or one forty roll up jib on their boat, right? Which is great when it's twelve or 14 knots. Mm. And yeah, sailmakers can make them so that they're less bad when they're rolled up at twenty, but there's still a compromise, right? So, I was just thinking the uh, I was adding it up the other day. I think out of this current entry list for the Bermuda one two, I have eight entries who are clients of mine in one way or another, and. Right off the top of my head, four of them have what I call a solent setup, mm-hmm. which is a way to address that very question. Just, you know, 20 knots of breeze, most boats are on their ear. Right. And nobody's going to go up and change, you know. And it's the one, two is the same guys that go out sailing, mum and dad and the dog and the kids on the weekend. Right. That's why it's, you know, I got the hood guys to get involved in sponsoring it because it's the same target market, if you will, that. Hood is really able to give good value to it. It's, you know, mum and dad and the kids on the saber 42. Right. Okay. I got four of these guys. They're all set up with um, a solid stay, which is a stay right behind the headsole and then a small jib on it. Mm-hmm. And tweaking that, how you put it together, which each individual boat and how you can do it with that boat without making a you know, a congressional act out of it. Mm. You know, what can we use that's already here? How can we do this? What's a simple way to land the bottom of the stay on the deck without taking it to a boat builder and I, I sort of joke to myself every once in a while that that's kind of my creative outlet is just sort of looking at the way boats are put together in, mm. in the deck layout and how they work sense and improving them. Which is really a hoot. Yeah, well it, every boat's different Well that's right, yeah. even two boats the same are different Right I did, I did one with a Quest 30 and I'm doing one with a Quest 33 now mm. So they're sort of functionally the same boat Except they're all a little bit different right? yeah. so. Everyone's had their own fingers in it Yeah, yeah And it's actually the one, the 30 is owned by a mate of mine It was the boat, it was the boat that I sailed to England in 96 For the guy who owned it to sail back in the Ostar. Oh, so wow. I probably got more miles on a Quest 30 than, than most <laughs> of the guys that own them. <laughs> Maybe that, except
0: Tristan. How is that? Yeah, right. How does that handle offshore? It's good. Is it, it comfortable?
1: Was, it oh. was a sweet little boat. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the that rock. particular boat was set up, the, the guy that commissioned it from Barrett was a guy named David Scully, who bought the wreckage of Mike Plant's Coyote mm. and, you know, did whatever he did. And he did, like, the BOC that must have been in... Ninety four, ninety five. 95 mm. and he finished the BOC and would do the O Star, but he didn't want to do it in you know 60 footer right um so he had Barrett build this Quest 30 and he had the engine installed in it but he didn't put the S drive on the bottom of it so it had had it had no engine even though it hadn't right engine.
0: It, had it was no a power bit. plant
1: it was a power plant yeah. he used it to run the batteries that was the last year of the OSTAR where they had they didn't have a handicap it was run on uh LOA brakes, you know, mm. 25, 30, 30 to 35. So he was in a 30 foot class and he figured, I don't need the drag. Right. <clears throat> so um, I sailed it off the dock at the Newport Yacht Club. Of course, it's always one o'clock in the morning. And then um, had to sail it on the dock in hoarder to get something fixed and then sail it off the dock at 10 o'clock at night. And then we got to Plymouth and David got some guys from the French Tries to come out and pick us up in one of their ribs. <laughs> Great. So that was fun. Lovely. Yeah. Well I won't keep you any longer. Well, as you know, we do the second edition in a few months. Yeah, right. You've been listening to Standing Before the Mast podcast with Chris Heaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply.